From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back. Two hours of sports analytics. Every week we do this, we've been coming to you virtually via Zoom since March. One benefit is that we almost all the time get the whole crew in here. So this is Cade Massey hosting with Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. We, of course, are going to do two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We're going to open, as we usually do, talking about COVID-19. It is the context for sports and our lives. Also involves lots of numbers. I certainly understand it better having had weekly conversations with these guys for the past six or seven months. Uh, we'll, we'll do a couple of open segments, and then we're ending with an interview with the good folks from Huddle on the frontier of sports analytics. Guys, good afternoon to you. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. You know, there's no regularity to the sports schedule, so there are games like tonight, and there, you know, it's weird, but we're going to get to that shortly. First, what has caught your eye in the world of COVID-19 lately? Okay, I'm happy to jump in. There's been a few articles in the popular press that I, that I wanted to get your reactions to. There was an article in the Times, the New York Times, that talked about how we're not scaring people enough. That's the problem. We're not scaring them enough. And they, the analogy was made to the old smoking campaigns. I don't know if you guys are, I know that, that, that some of us are old enough to remember. I don't know about you, Shane. The, uh, the, uh, the, the advertisements that talked about, this is what happens to you. This is your lungs on cigarette smoke. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, well, I mean, my generation, I mean, by the way, cigarette, uh, you know, packages still have pretty, pretty grim announcements on them. They haven't departed from that. Um, yeah. But my generation, you know, during the height of the war on drugs was, you know, this is your brain on drugs, this is your brain this is, on you know, et cetera. But I have to say, but that's a good analogy because there was a lot of been a lot of been a pushback on that because the question was, what's the purpose? And are we and, and is it important to be honest? And the, the smoking message, and I'll put this in context and we can then react to it, is smoking, if someone starts smoking early in their lives, say in their 20s, smoking can expect on average to cost you about 11 years of your life. Oh it's my a gosh. terrible thing to do. Hmm. It, is a, it is a gruesome, a gruesome choice. It is that likely you'll either have heart disease or lung cancer. And that you and you'll get it in your fifties or sixties or something. Well, so hold earlier. on, I, talk about pushback. I don't even believe that stat. No, I, mean, I can't be that's right. Conditional on some amount of smoking. It is not conditional on having smoked. Uh, that's got to be a marginal effect, no, not a partial course. effect in our in, it, our in our terminology, right? It can't it can't possibly be a casual cigarette here and there. I would guess it probably has to do with pretty heavy smoking over the course of your life. Yeah. But that is a good thing to push back on, indeed. You're <laughs> <laughs> making your point for you, I think. So you think you think these scare tactics are not the right way to go. You have been a voice of moderation. In I absolutely. This but I want to. Mm-hmm. And it's I not that you just like you think you don't think it's all overblown. It's that you want some discrimination between the greater risk and the lesser risk. And I'm, I'm guessing that your concern is that if we just scare them, people are going to be too blunt and coarse in the policies they adopt. And in fact, I mean, I noticed that in individual behaviors. So um, so just to, as a matter, I don't even know what the numbers are, but obviously this is not a lifetime. A lifetime. We're not going to be sitting there with COVID for our lifetime, in which case you can actually expect noticeable decrements in our life expectancies. But by the time it's all washed out, the actual cost to our life expectancy will be measured in weeks, not even in years. That should give you an analogy to this to the cigarette yeah, smoking. Yeah, and and I think the better. I mean, it, it, 
I mean, a cigarette, I mean, I think cigarettes obviously like are, are kind of almost an easy one because I mean, I don't know how prior, I mean, I, I grew up after the time when it had at least become publicly accepted that cigarettes were bad for you. I'm not quite sure about the That's generations right. before that were hacking up a lung, but yet somehow convinced it was not bad for you. Okay. But like, <laughs> was, I, I think it it's more- centuries, It was centuries of cognitive dissonance. Come on. Right, right. And, but I, and I, th- I think that cognitive dissonance to the extent that it like affects compliance is the, the real analogy that I've kind of been thinking about a lot with these, with mask regulations and all this other stuff is, is, is seatbelts, you know, yep. in cars. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's an example because seatbelts are, are kind of a weird thing where, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that if you actually need them, they're going to be useful to you. You know, mm-hmm. if you're actually in an accident, I don't think anybody's being like, Oh, the seatbelt's not going to help. It's just that presumably the people that don't wear seatbelts feel like it's not worth it because the risk of actually being an accident yeah. is low enough. Yeah. And similarly for people with, 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 with these COVID things that like, yep. you know, they view it as kind of a rare enough or, or, or you know, something that's not going to affect them personally. And so therefore they feel like they shouldn't comply. I, you know, and I'll remind, I mean, just to finish the thought, just as yeah. kind of a grim kind of thing about these sure. like warnings, um, I still see there are still ads on TV now about how you should wear your seatbelt. Like and and so if we're still trying to convince people that seatbelts are worth doing, I'm not sure we're going to really you know there's mu- there's much ground to be made right, so, in terms of scaring people into COVID regulations. So I think that uh, I'll make a couple of observations. First of all, I remember from the 80s and 90s. I even did some my actual first collaborative research project with a smoking researcher, and the observations were made at that time is that the given what the smoking industry was the smoking industry like philip morris was putting out and what people believed they greatly underestimated the health impact of smoking at the time and so these campaigns were there to recalibrate everyone to where they should be i actually think and as 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 you mentioned earlier about my my i feel like we've gone we are we don't have the right balance i think that there's people who ignoring it and the people who are who are just crazy with worry. Um, and I worry about that campaign because the people who ignore it will just continue to ignore it. And the people who are crazy with worry are just going to get worse. I, I want to get, I got to get Eric in here because he's been dying to get in. But I, I, my, my sense is that that balance isn't like struck, that we're not, there's not an equal number on both sides, that the consequences mm-hmm. are, are also not equal on both sides. And so I, I don't have, I think it's an interesting question, but I don't have the visceral reaction against it. You do because we have so many people who are still neglecting basic precautions. They're actually pretty low cost precautions. It's not shut everything down. Don't send the kids to school. Don't leave your house. It's not that they're not doing basic low cost stuff, but Eric, now that I've said I would get you in, I'm going to step aside and get you in. No, no. I was just going to blend my comment with what Adi just said. So I think thinking of the number of people that, would be affected maybe by some sort of announcement or, you know, we haven't scared people enough. It's the wrong, it's a limited way of thinking about it. Let me say why. There's probably a certain fraction of the population, 25, 30% that are going to be never vacciners, no matter what you do. So those people you're going to have no impact on. And as a matter of fact, trying to have an impact on those people may actually hurt your ability to have an impact on the other 75% of the people for whom you can actually have an impact on. And then it gets to the point I was going to bring up when you said what caught our eye in COVID. Maybe because there's two vaccines right now that we know are 95% effective. We just heard about another one today that might be 70% effective. 
maybe this is to Adi's point from weeks and weeks and weeks, maybe mm-hmm. we can get herd immunity just by focusing on the 75%. There's going to be a never trier segment, no matter what. Let's not try to scare them because it'll actually hurt the 75%. Let's focus on the 75% and do what's right for them. That would be, that's the classic heterogeneity story in marketing. We never build models enough that have what's called a spike at zero enough that there's just going to be a group that's never going to buy this product. There's a group that's never going to take the vaccine and you need to know how big a spike that is. And then what the differential effectiveness of advertising is for that group potentially, which is zero because they'll never do it versus the rest of the population. But I, I think we should make a distinction here between people who like the kind of never, the never compliers as far as a vaccine goes are have a significant overlap, but are not the same as the current non-compliers for kind of like other, you know, COVID sort of regulations, wearing masks, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I, I mean, I completely agree. Scare tactics specific to the vaccine are not going to you know, are by construction not going to work on those never complier group, right? But, you know, I, I, again, I haven't read this New York Times article, so I don't know if the kind of scare tactics that they're sort of proposing or, or, or their observation that we should be scaring people more, is it more to do with specifically the vaccine or is it more to do with kind of, again, the sort of social distancing, mask wearing kind of stuff that, you know, is, would at least kind of help us get to that vaccine? I think what it is, by the way, I think, by the way, there is universal acceptance, maybe not universal, but much more wide, widespread acceptance of mask wearing today. I think their issue no, is, is the no fr- way that has to universal be what among your friends. I mean, what, what do you know? I think almost every country, every 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 state has with barely an exception, has some kind of mandate. Even No, there's a, I thought the New York Times had a graphic. There's like 12 of them don't, that have no max mandate. It's like a map on today's issue. Yeah, no. Twelve of the states don't really. Have I, I, I didn't even realize that. Um, but what I, I think, but I actually think that so much of the concern is like, why is it spreading so rapidly around Philadelphia? Is 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 private gatherings, and that's really what the the yeah. address is about. No, no, yeah, Large and I did say sort of social. When I, you know, I did say social distancing kind of regulations in it that includes mask wearing. No, so, I mean I agree. Mask wearing is people are, are a little bit more compliant on that than kind of more general gatherings and social distancing, though. I mean, compliance even on mask wearing is, is not building on your point, Shane, is another concern we have is unless you guys have seen some data, but at least I heard it spoken about yesterday. We have no evidence yet. Maybe Adi, you've seen some that suggests that the vaccine prevents you from spreading the disease. And so if we don't know whether it prevents you from spreading it, then that implies the number one reason, as they talked about from the beginning, that you wear a mask isn't so much protection for you, but protection for others, which means even if you even if 70 percent of the U.S. population is vaccinated by June, it might still require people to wear masks, not to put in danger the other 30 plus percent of the population. Eric, <laughs> is this one is this one of the things we just don't know definitively, but we strongly presume or I is it we literally don't know? Yeah, I'm going to jump in on this one. It's it's the former. We presume it will prevent transmission because yes. you're not going to get infected and therefore the viral loads will be low. I think what you're doing is you're pointing out is that we don't know this for fact. Yes. And and these things are very hard to necessarily predict. COVID has thrown quite a few breaking curveballs that, that end up in the lower part of the strike zone and no one can miss. And so I'm not so sure that we know anything 
but but I think we suspect it I mean, will. What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, and, and there's a lot of scientific presumption, at least, that like at the minimum, it would reduce the window in which you're infectious if yeah. you actually, you know. I mean, that's how vaccines work. I mean, Eric, that's how they go. I mean, that's just well, how so they've I been. Have a, I have a clarifying question on what you say, what, what you said, which is um, if the virus is still in the air, right, and I yeah. inhale the virus, but I've gotten the vaccine, it doesn't mean I'm not infected. It might mean my body now has the ability to fight that infection, but it doesn't mean it's not in my body. Yeah, but True, there's, but there, it, there's ahead, two things here. You you gotta you're in your body. Your the virus multiplies and it becomes um, sufficiently large enough to actually spread to other people. So you can get a you can get a few virus particles in your and then it, it, you won't necessarily get infected until it multiplies enough to then spread. Yeah, but we don't we don't know the in some sense, the thing that is unknown, which is back to Cade's question, is what's the degree of viral load you need, meaning this multiplication process, that both makes you symptomatic versus asymptomatic, but spreader versus not? And I'm not sure that's completely well understood. Mm-hmm. So I, I, want to, I want to point out one thing and then ask one follow-up question. We're in this interesting space where we're beginning to think about vaccine issues, um, the sequencing of who gets them, the persuasion efforts to get people to take them when they can. We're, we're, we're moving on, but we still have this pandemic that's raging. It's, and it's literally raging. And so more fundamental, basic questions like how do we get people to wear masks are still relevant. And we shouldn't, and we shouldn't forget that. But Adi, you said this thing that, I, that really struck me wrong. And that is that on, when it's all said and done, this is only going to knock a couple of weeks off of our expected lifespan. And even if that's true, statistically, on average, I don't at all think that's relevant to my decision-making process because I'm not getting a bunch of draws here. I'm going to get exactly one draw. And I think it's one, I think it's a case where everybody should be quite risk averse about what that draw is. I mean, if I get this thing and die, everything is, there's nothing after that. And so I would like for that not to happen. And so I think the average here is not a relevant number for decision-making as an individual. In fact, I've well, really have felt more risk averse in my life. In fact, this is—I'm sure this is the most risk averse I've been for a continued period of time in my entire life. No, and I mean, well, I think that's right. I mean, as far as like government policy, I can understand why you'd want to kind of orient that to kind of expectation over pop- population. So even that, you would want to kind of consider expectations within you know, obvious subgroups of the population. But at an individual level, of course, you're going to think much more about the variance in that. Yeah, let me, let me, I, I mean, I was actually talking about the advertising campaign, which is a, has to be built, built or generated on an expected value rather than on a personal experience. Yeah. But I have to say, one of the things that we've, we've been very, and we've been pretty good on our show to kind of explain, but the general public is fully unaware of what your personal risks are. This is something that people simply don't know and in fact, the New York Times ran a different article, ran an, actually a, a story talking about things like not actually pinpointing it, but they couldn't actually admit one of the most fundamental truths of COVID-19, which is that conditional on your age, women are half the probability of dying than men. Yeah. And that it's true at every single age point. And they couldn't get themselves to actually admit the, that if they even knew it, that that was true. Um, because you get this crazy, nice Simpsons paradox whereby because so many so much more of the elderly population is is female by right. an enormous amount you end right. up and, and therefore be, and so many of the deaths happen at the upper, upper end 
you end up getting about 50-50 men and women dying. But at any condition on your age, it's twice. It's not even close. This is a fact that almost nobody knows. Right, right. But okay. I, 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 hey, it's, a, it's an interesting fact, but is it a useful fact as far as public policy goes? Uh, like, how would you, how would you use that fact? My, my wife should go to the store. I mean, oh, I, mean, I see. I mean, I don't know how you want to use it, but if, if, um, and, and this well, is, I, I don't I know, suggest- within a family, it matters. Well, I have some suggestions. Some suggestions could be, um, who do you vaccinate first? Mm-hmm. Do you vaccinate also people that, this is another point, do you vaccinate people last that have already had COVID who have yep. some degree of immunity? Hold so, on, Eric, are you going to say vaccinate men first because they're more vulnerable? I would suggest that's not an unreasonable thing. No, I'm not. I'm not no, Adia asked from a public policy perspective, how could you use this? Yeah, you no, I hear you. Make a decision to vaccinate people based on their proclivity to have serious events. And my comment was, by the way, just I don't want to lose this point before because, kid, you brought this up earlier. This is one of those cases where I don't want the average effect. I want the distribution of effects. Mm-hmm. I want with this probability. This is my outcome with this probability. This is my outcome with this probability. This is my outcome. And I want it, as Adi said, conditional on my age, my comorbidities, et cetera. I don't want to know that, you know, this is on average going to take a few weeks out of my life. I want to know with one half, one percent, right. it's going to take off I, the next 40 years of my life with That's this right. probability. That's what I, I I don't want to summarize this by a central measure of tendency. I want the full distribution. That's right. But so I'm by, going to point by, in. By, by the way, that that suggests, I mean, I am far from a marketer. Eric is the only marketer in the room, but that suggests some some uh, some fruitful opportunities for advertising campaigns is to make it personal to, to unpack those bad outcomes. And even if they're low probability, they are hugely impactful. So make them more colorful and more piquant to people. Adi, I have a question. Well, then I'll obviously let you talk. Um, we did this, this fact that it, it, it's that more that women seem uh, that are, are dying less awesome. Is that somehow, does that also condition on, it doesn't condition on exposure, right? Well, that was, uh, no, that was, not at all. Right? Not, so, so I mean, we no, don't no, actually no, know that women no, somehow not, can fight off no, this no, no, virus no, it better. It's just that they, it may be entirely due to them just having less exposure because you know they're they're more likely to be at home, etc. Oh, oh, oh or, or they might be no, smarter I mean, and wiser and less, you know, imprudent. That almost unfortunately certainly is the case. Not, it's no, not that true. Is, that's been shown. Nice. That is true. Nice. If you conditional on exposure, men have twice the probability of dying. It's conditional on getting it's, sick. Mm. And you can go and look at it. You can, Philly has a great website where it breaks it down by age, and you can see what the what the pro- probabilities are. Interesting. It turns out even okay. in Europe that the uh, it turns out there, in Europe it's even the the difference is even larger. Um, the 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 man disadvantages is is worse, and one of the reasons are the comorbidities. So one of the the things that we have a hard time with are knowing whether is it something about women in general. And my doctor friends say yes, women they, they're 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 built to survive childbirth. They are able to, st- to withstand things that men aren't, and they're pro- um, and they're less obese, et cetera, et cetera. But here's but here's what's fascinating: obesity is protective in women and harmful in men. It's is terrifying. That right? yeah, absolutely, is that right? yes. Hmm. Um, and and men obviously have more likely to have uh, heart disease, particularly at a younger age, than than women, and that seems to be another comorbidity. So men are are obviously more likely to have the co- comorbidities that matter. And and but then there's also the wild card, which is 
which is and, and which it seems to be true that even among people without comorbidities, women are much less likely to, to, to have, have a very bad or a fatal outcome from COVID-19. And now that that is something that potentially could affect you. I could say in, in my 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 in our own household, my wife, maybe it's her personality, but she also knows the statistic is certainly less fearful than I am. And maybe because I'm on the cusp of being a little on the overweight side a little bit. Um, and I'm also <laughs> be, be, be quite honest about that. Um, and being male, I mean, I, I would argue, and you can look at the data, I probably have three times the probability of a bad outcome than she does. Wow. Wow. Okay. Now, I, I just want to frame the discussion we're having also more broadly in like the topic that many of us have looked at over the years, which is kind of this network science and diffusion. I mean, one of the issues is like you could say, well, give it to men first because they're more likely to get it. But then, as Shane just mentioned, it doesn't mean they're more likely to be exposed Two, it doesn't mean they are uh, men are more likely to be bigger spreaders than women. So I'm saying this is what people in network science study. Yep. You can't just give out, for example, you don't just give out free samples to the people that are going to be the highest probability of triers because we don't know their spread rate. We don't know their eventual adoption rate. And so it, it's not a single summary measure that's going to determine even the optimal vaccination populations. That's not how it works. As a matter of fact, you could make an argument if you want from that point of view. Of course, older people, very old people, are the people most likely to, to die if they get the disease, but they're also more less likely to spread it. And so if you had a fixed population of vaccine doses, which is what we have now, if your only goal was to minimize deaths, I'm just commenting commenting. It's not a trivial problem just to say, give it to the people that are most vulnerable. Well, I think this, this question of who gets it is fascinating, of course. And the CDC, we talked about it on last week's show, the CDC had hearings and they made uh, their recommendations last week. But now um, it's, that's totally non-binding. People can do whatever they it's want up to. to the states. And now, and, and now things are being distributed. I'm down here in Texas and the allocations have been announced and everybody's up in arms. You know, some hospitals got nothing. Some hospitals got a bunch. It's totally opaque. I mean, it's just remarkable that they would allocate something as important as this, this high profile, and not communicate the procedures, the criteria that determine the allocations. It's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's weird that an endeavor that large would be inefficiently implemented and and, and politicized <laughs> in this country. Let me let me point out because Kate, you objected rightly to the idea of an expected value, um, expected lifetime cost in years. On, we, on the individual level, but if you're actually thinking about uh, vaccine distribution, sure. one would argue that's the only number that matters. Oh, no, the, not what, only. Now we got to value well, life. We've got spread. Right. We got lots of things. No, but wh which is the which is the method that has the saves the most numbers of years? Well, that's that's a but this is no. a value this is no. a value conversation. That's not. No, I mean, if you're really going to start, right? if you're really going to start uh, putting numbers on people's lives, and we're going to have to start arguing like is is every is every person day worth the same? <laughs> no, I mean, but uh, this is this is a pretty egalitarian way to start. A day is a day is a day. We want to save as many days as we can. No, right? strong assumptions there. Strong assumptions there. Yeah, that's you're already that's that's strong. Already strong. Guys, we're a little little far afield. Let me let me wind you back a little bit because there was a neat article that was published, the SSRN, just a working paper from a couple of my former colleagues at Yale, and a, and a good public, uh, a, a, a popular press version of it. But Matt Spiegel and Heather Tooks. Uh, finance professors up at Yale did something we've been waiting for people to do, which is they, they, they're working with this crazy patchwork of policies around the country to figure out what actually has been most effective. So 
they look at county level data, county level for all these different policies and outcomes of various kinds. And these are these are serious folks, and they've got a ton of resources and RAs working on this stuff. And they've they're and they're able to identify a few policies that tend to help and a few policies that seem to hurt. So they're they're not so surprising for us because we've been talking about these things for a while. But it's good to see some good empirical support. So for example, mask mandates helpful. Closing restaurants, hate to say this, but helpful. Um, Stay-at-home orders, helpful. Limiting gatherings to 10 people. These are the ones they see the most support for being helpful. What about hurtful uh, or hurt hurt the things? Um, Closing low-risk businesses, which is interesting. They argue that this, I mean, they don't don't know this, but they they suggest that this might um, push people into more risky behavior. So, you know, retail shops, this kind of thing, which isn't that big a deal. It's not like sitting around eating without a mask for two hours, that it might actually be hurt, hurt things to, to close those. And they also found that limiting gatherings to 100 people was counterproductive. And they speculated that's because it seemed to license gatherings up to 99 people, which mm-hmm. doesn't seem like a very good idea. Anyway, I, I, I like this. I, I like these guys. I like this work. And I, this is the kind of thing we've been hoping we can learn from because there's been so much heterogeneity out there. Heterogeneity is good for learning. And maybe we're going to learn a little bit. By the way, Heather, we have a guest on the show frequently, Chris Alexopoulos, who is the lead soccer producer for ESPN. You guys know Chris. We talk to Chris every now and then. He and Heather are married. So he is the husband of this fantastic finance prof who just produced this work. One question for y'all. This, they do this county level. No, counties don't live on little islands, right? I and mean, this is an arbitrary. It must be that these results are greatly diluted because a county is affected by the policies of the counties that it's surrounded by, is it not? So they, they, I'm, I'm sure they acknowledge this in the, in the deeper academic paper, but it would be an interesting, if you could, you could probably run a more sophisticated model that borrowed strength from what was going on in surrounding counties, right? You need kind of a spatial thing. Am I thinking about that right? You are thinking about it right. Um, they didn't do that such thing. Uh, they, they attempted to do, they looked at borders and then they tried to look at, uh, tried to look at a, a border of a policy where on one side of the border, border the policy changed and the other side of the border, the policy stayed the same. But they recognized the bleed because you just would move from one to the other. Yeah. If, if restaurants were open over there, but not here, like Philly is a perfect example of that, by the way. You can't eat inside in Philly, but you can eat inside in Wynwood. They're right next to each other. So it doesn't really make much sense to look at the policy impact in Philly when people from Philly are just going to move to Wynwood or vice versa. Um, so they tried to uh, implement a gap. That was their goal. Um, and that seems reasonable, but all these things are multi, what in statistics we call multicollinear. All these implements happen at the same time. And you have a massive intercorrelation, not only spatially, as you point out, but also in time. And this is a massive trap to try to model statistically. And I look through the model and I'll grant this is a start, but it is just a scratch because all that structure was just simply not accounted for. Yeah. And I mean, it, I mean, we, we, early on, like for months, I've been kind of talking about it, and it's kind of to Kate's point is that, you know, this all this heterogeneity of essentially political like public policy decision making mm-hmm. across, especially in America, where so much of the, the decision making is decentralized, uh, provides like a nice substrate for experimentation because you are going to see a huge amount of variation in public policy. But unfortunately, most of the variation, as you sort of it's not going to be like one dimension at a time where you can yeah. kind of hide like you know the heterogeneity in mask and kind of mask regulations is 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 correlated with the heterogeneity in restaurant initiatives etc 
Okay, so go, let me push back a little bit on this, guys, because we always ask for this kind of variance. We look for exogenous variance. And, and I don't want to be, we, we shouldn't stand here and say, because it's not perfect or because they, they remain correlated, we can't learn anything. I mean, if, if we can't learn from this, given the patchwork of policies out there, we're never going to be able to learn from just archival data. I mean, that, I think it's, are you being too nihilistic to say, ah, collinear, can't learn. I, no, I hear- Kate, we're, we're standing by the principles of our discipline which is that you got to have experimentation to ultimately understand cause and effect. And when, when in absence of experimentation, you're left with observational data, which then you have to kind of figure out how to disentangle. And that's extremely challenging, particularly when you have time series correlation. That is the Achilles heel of no, almost every we got, analysis. We got time and, and, series variation. It's not, it's not, it's, right. I mean, you're, you're, you're arguing that it's not perfect and therefore it's not useful. I think that's exactly wrong. It's, and it's, I'm, 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 I'm not, I, I certainly, I'm not arguing that. I think there's useful and learning can happen, but I think at a minimum, the one, one thing that I think would soothe myself and, and maybe even soothe Audie um, would be <laughs> that the, the language involved in the, in, in the reporting of, res- of findings both at the scientific level and certainly at the media level, needs to sound less causal when it's really not a causal Fair. statement. Fair. So I think Fair. we have to be more ca- – learning can still happen, but we inherently are more cautious about it when all this kind of multicollinearity is obviously present. Yeah. And, that's, and, that's, and you know, call, a, cause, a cause and effect relationships are close to impossible to tease out of this kind of observational data. But that's the, I mean, that's the enterprise of, so, of, of many branches of social science is to get more and more clever about teasing, as, getting as close as we can, because we could yeah. randomize the experiment. We can't get definitive, but we can get closer and closer. And if we can't Agreed. learn from this mess we've been watching for the last nine months, we can't learn from anything. No, well, and I mean, I'll, 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 I'll only just kind of <laughs> add that one role in which statisticians frequently play is in, commu- in talking to all the wonderful social science people using statistics that they are in general using kind of too strong of language when they look at when they yeah. are talking about, you know, that they, they, they overuse kind of causal language when really they should be using a more kind of cautious kind of terminology. By the way, the Yale study um, is not the only one that came out this week. There was a study in Germany, which I also had the opportunity to peruse, which looked at the effect of mask implementation, mask mandates in Germany. And they found a very compelling uh, right elbow in the in the rate of growth of a viral infection that took place about uh, two weeks after the mandate um, was implemented. What do you mean by and right it, elbow? Oh, in other words, just imagine a graph going up and then just deciding to go flat. So a, a compelling drop on mandate. Compelling drop two in weeks the rate later, of increase, sharp drop about two weeks later. But what they did, you know, what they were, but a bit more modest instead of trying to tried to understand all the different ways of implementing different different uh, strictures from man from masks to numbers of people in the in the, in, a, in a house to all these things small they just let let's just look at masks and see what we can what can emerge from that and I actually think that um, sometimes ambition gets in the way of science and that mm-hmm. you should just speak a little bit smaller be a little bit carefully <laughs> not try yeah. to look at everything under the sun and just make a small point about something and then say it and, and that you can be more reliable about rather than just this mask, uh, you know, over, over uh, um, arching work. Your general point, just quickly to what Cade said earlier, um, the cross-sectional story, I mean, at a given point in time, some, some mandate masks, some don't. That's almost an easier story to tell 
than the time series story. Because again, back to your point, Adi, the time series story, there's a lot that can vary over time. In some sense, that variation helps in some ways, but it hurts in others. I would be happier if there were, you know, in some sense, a randomized experiment in a cross-sectional way mm-hmm. than one that happened over time where you then, not saying you can't do anything, you can, but you'd have to control for lots of other time-varying factors. Can you imagine an enlightened state that would have said in April, we, we don't know what's going to work. We're going to run an experiment in all the counties of the state. Well, <laughs> I mean, you could have done such a thing. You could have sure. done that far side learned and that would have led to better policy at the three-month mark. And here we are at the 10-month mark or nine-month mark, and we still don't know what's going on. All right, guys, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three. Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Second quarter now coming out of our COVID-19 discussion. Sadly, there is still COVID-19 to talk about when we turn our eyes to college football. Just today, we're recording Tuesday afternoon, just today was announced that the Michigan-Ohio State game is canceled, scheduled for this Saturday. Obviously, a tragedy from a reunion pageantry college football moment perspective. Um, It's trouble for Michigan. They've had trouble getting their COVID-19 cases under control. But it's real problematic for Ohio State. Obviously, they, they're supposed to play six games, six conference games in order to qualify for the conference championship. They have only played five. So here's arguably, I mean, not arguably, a consensus top four team in the country who at the moment doesn't qualify for their conference championship. There are possibilities afloat. I mean, this is college football. We, there are no rules that can't be bent, right? So well, they're meeting tomorrow to decide whether to bend them. Big, there's a, there's, a, there's a weekly meeting they have, uh, so they were going to meet anyway, but they've got a more important, they got a specially important agenda item now. On, is there some way to bend those guys in? They made a fuss last weekend about making um, Northwestern the champs out of the West when Wisconsin didn't qualify. And that was because the, the, the qualifying event was that the average number of games for definitively was going to be more than six. And with that, the case, Wisconsin can't get to six. And so they said, well, that means Northwestern is the Western champ. It's so hypocritical. They back off on that now, three days later um, with this Ohio state thing, but you know, it's NCAA. Um, the other possibility is to find another game for them. So if there's some other conference team that becomes available, God knows games get canceled all the time. There's another week they might be able to squeeze in. Anyway, this is top of the news as we go to recording. Any thoughts on what's going on in the Big Ten? Well, I just have a question. It's about what's going on in the Big Ten, but I mean, is this good or bad news for Ohio State? So let's think about, let's play this out. So one is they, they change the rule. Ohio State plays that game. There's some probability, whatever it is, 20%, who knows what it is, that they lose that game. Okay. Michigan? No, they were 30 no, points. No, Ohio State. State. I'm saying oh, no, but they weren't going to lose to Michigan. They might lose the, the conference championship or to Michigan. Yeah. So somehow they decide to let Ohio State into the conference championship game, okay. Okay. despite not having played six games. They lose that game. They're definitely out of the college football playoffs at that point. They don't play the game. And people say, well, Ohio State's top four. They haven't done anything to stop our belief about them being top four. If their goal is to actually make the college football playoffs, which one is actually better? I'd make the argument, don't play the game. 
Well, what you're, 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 that hinges on the politics of the committee, and we don't know. And you're betting, so you're betting, you're betting on the probabilities of that committee versus the probability they're losing a game. So I would say that their chance of they're losing one of those two games is, but the the cumulative probability is, I don't know. You know, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, point I, four. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think the, I, I think point certainly three. the, the, the team and 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 coaching and all that views themselves as a top four team in the nation would rather demonstrate that with that extra game than leave it up to kind of the committee to hopefully view them as as meritous for that top four, even in the absence of that game. If yeah. I had to guess. But that, that's the team preference. Now, I share your sense, Eric, that the committee will probably take them. I mean, they've looked, except with one exception, the Indiana game, they have looked the part. Um, well, let me go to my also, scenario, which I did tweet about at W Money. Hold, hold on. Before you go, Eric, one, one second. I, I, I think this is a time to be somewhat, if you want to predict accurately, it's hard to be too cynical when it comes to college football. And so I'm, I would cynically predict that there's some way, there, there's by hook or by crook, They'll qualify Ohio State. I'm going to guess, um, and it'll they'll they'll and they'll and they'll win handily, and they'll be selected into the playoffs. But Eric, you 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 you're getting constrained. The world's not really cooperating with you very well because there aren't many teams that are even eligible. So you, to come up with doomsday, you've only got like five moving parts or six at the most. What do you got? I got a simple doomsday scenario, which is the following. So Clemson is going to be playing Notre Dame in the ACC championship game. Okay. Notre Dame already beat Clemson. I understand Trevor Lawrence didn't play, but Notre Dame won the game, 47 to 40, okay? Let's imagine Clemson beats Notre Dame. So now they both have one loss. Let's imagine it's a close game. They both have one loss. They've both beaten each other. They're both currently in the top four, okay? Now, here's where the other scenario comes in. Florida, which is playing in the SEC championship game against Alabama, I don't think anybody's favoring them. Matter of fact, last time I saw they were a 14-point dog. But let's imagine the scenario. I get to, when I get to say a doomsday scenario, I get to do whatever I want. It doesn't have to be probable. We understand. Florida <laughs> beats Alabama. Now, a lot of people have said that Alabama's a lock no matter what. Okay, so now we have an undefeated – we have Florida, Alabama. Florida has to go if they beat Alabama. You just said Alabama's just a to, lock. Just to clarify, Florida has one loss? Yes. Yes. Florida beats Alabama. Alabama and Florida both have one loss, but they both go. Clemson beats Notre Dame. Do they both go? Then there's no Ohio State. There's no Big Ten. There's no Texas A&M who's sitting there at number five who may play in their who will play in their championship game and probably win that game. There'll be a one loss team that will beat Florida. Who Texas A&M beat Florida? Yeah. 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 You make my doomsday even better. I know. I flipped. I flipped. My mistake. My mistake. Florida beat A&M. Oh, okay. oh. That, that is their loss. Yeah. Am I, am I getting so, so, so to a certain extent, like there's no, you know, there's no scenario where really Texas A&M gets in. Probably. No, no, but Shane, let, just say you're the committee. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. Clemson beats Notre Dame in a close game and Florida beats Alabama. Are those the four teams then in the playoffs? Or do you use recency and say Clemson beat Alabama, uh, Notre Dame more recently and with Trevor Lawrence, I'm taking Clemson over Notre Dame and therefore the four is going to be Florida, Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State? No, I think uh, it, it would depend on the nature of the victory. But if you're going to take sort of a recent I, – I would take Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame and Florida still gets excluded – even though they just beat Alabama. Yeah, that's right. No, I don't, I don't understand that one at all. 
the by the way, I've really I've really brut- uh, brutalized it. I had it right the first time. AM beat Florida. AM lost to Alabama. So oh. that's a good that's a good loss by Florida, but it's a better loss by AM. But I'm right. with I'm with I'm with Eric on that. I think if Florida if Florida makes it through, they beat Alabama and the S, they win the SEC. They beat Alabama. Their only loss is against a very decent AM. It's I can't imagine them not taking it. Well, that makes I, the doomsday even better. A and M beat Florida, and you're taking Florida over A and M. Yeah, that's the way. It, I mean, yes. or you could take neither of them and take yourself out of that doomsday and take Ohio State in there instead. Oh, I mean, Eric, it was it was really too- made my day, Kate. You've made the doomsday scenario even better. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think anybody's arguing that this is kind of a very difficult doomsday scenario. I don't think it's particularly probable because it is entirely predicated on Florida beating Alabama, but. Well, so let's, it, let's it, be it, it's, re, it's it's at least possible. And, I mean, look, and it, it, would does, be it happens. We the, we the, if anything we've learned in sports, and and we've noted this year, we've noted this time and time again on this show. Just when you think something's inevitable, it doesn't come to pass. And so, as good as A and M looks, I mean, as good as Alabama looks, a fourteen point line. Let's just say that it is a fourteen point line. And that happens. Teams lose with fourteen as point, fourteen point favorites, and so it's fun to entertain it at least. I mean, it doesn't is, sound is, very is, fun. Is, is there any scenario where some a team like Cincinnati can still get in? It's hard to come up with it because the games we're down to these title games, so you need to knock Clemson out. So you need Notre Dame to win the ACC final, and they're going to be I don't know four or seven point underdog, something like that. Um, so you knock Clemson out. You need probably Ohio State to screw something up. Yeah, I was about to say, Ohio State playing and losing would help yeah. Cincinnati quite a bit. But they've, they've so, but now you've got those guys out of the way. You need Alabama to knock Florida out. So now you've got Alabama and Notre Dame in there. And yeah, then, Notre Dame has to beat Clemson. Alabama has to beat Florida. So those two are out. So then you've got Notre Dame. You've got, you've got Alabama. You've, and, prob- you've probably got – matter of fact, regardless – who would you take, Cincinnati or Texas A&M? You'd probably take Texas A&M. And if you were pulling for the Cincinnati scenario, you wanted A&M to lose against Auburn last weekend. And, and they were at Auburn, and they won decisively. And it, it really hurt, it hurt Cincinnati. But in the, the other, you could say, well, okay, take A&M and Cincinnati. And that's true, but somebody will have done some damage to Ohio State. So what if, um, you know, what if they schedule Indiana again and Indiana's the one that beats them? What if somehow Northwestern upsets them in the big 10 championship? So maybe you've got to put Cincinnati against that team. And so it's not, it's not impossible, but it seems pretty unlikely. A lot of things have to happen that seem unlikely on them by themselves, much less in conjunction. Anything else about the college football landscape, guys? Anything to stand out? I watched that beautiful, what a football game between Coastal Carolina and BYU. Mm -hmm. And the thing I loved about that game was they scheduled it like two days before it was played. And let me just be clear. These were two teams that were 9-0. and So if you want to call it, they know, they know neither of them is getting to the college football playoff. But this was their playoff. This was it. This was their championship game. And Coastal Carolina won that game. And, you know, they beat – look, when you actually look at their top 25 wins, if that's all you measured, Coastal Carolina should be in the playoffs. They're going to have three top 25 wins. Name another team that has three top 25 wins. No, I'm just commenting. Coastal. This was so beautiful for Coastal Carolina to do, and I'm shocked that BYU took the game. 
Yeah. Well, no, you know, you hear me shocked about that. They were looking for ways they, they had, you know, they lost eight games off their schedule in the first, you know, in August. And so they were making them up with playing teams like Texas state. And so they were looking for any way to bolster their case. I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I'm impressed with them. That's what they did. Look, they had to fly all the way across country. They did this coastal plays this unique offense that you really need more than a week to prepare for. And they had one, two days to deal with it. It's extraordinary that they did what they did and they took it down. And then they, of course they end in this amazing fashion being tackled at the one, one, two yard line on the last play of the game where it would, a touchdown would have won the game. Everybody remembered the exact same thing when it happened. It was the Tennessee Titans in the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. however many years ago that was against the greatest show on turf. That's right. Against 2000, Ole. I guess. Right. Was it? No, that no, 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 no. This, oh, you're right. You're right. This is the Dick Vermeil Super Bowl. Dick Vermeil was the coach and that was his one Super Bowl win was against – it would have had to have been – when did the Patriots beat the Rams? That was – Oh, one. So, I mean, it was the year before, right? It was the year before that. Yeah. Okay. So, it was a heck of a game. Everybody was delighted about that from start to finish. Good fun. I, I want to add one college football note. And, the, of course, it, I'm, I'm, I'm always looking at things through the University of Texas. But the, the word was that Texas made a run at Urban Meyer and made very healthy offers to him and that he declined them. And no one's going to be definitive about this for another couple of years, but this, this happened basically. And it means that Texas is back to the spot of, do you, do you fire Tom Herman? Do you pay probably 20 plus million dollars to him and his assistant coaches and buyouts in order to hire somebody who's not a slam dunk like urban Meyer? Cause nobody else is a slam dunk. And the reason I'm mentioning all of this is just the challenge with these coaching hires. It is just an extraordinary challenge to get this thing right. And most of them don't work out. Even the ones that seem obvious and shiny when they happen often don't work out. It's just really, really hard. I think it's an interesting challenge for organizations to get right. And nobody's really cracked the nut on how to hire. A coach. How many coaches would you say are, I mean, obviously you could hire Nick. I mean, even at his age, you would hire Nick Saban, right? Yes. You'd hire yes. Urban Meyer for sure. Dabo Sweeney. Dabo yes. Sweeney for sure. So that's, that's great. That's about it. That's, That's about, about it, it right? <laughs> I mean, there aren't, many the colleges. there aren't many more that have won national championships. That's, and that's kind of the criteria in Texas. Here's fans the other one that I would hire. I, mean, I just forget his. This is a possibility because of where he is now. Just remind me of the guy that won the national championship with that, that's a Texas A&M now. Jimbo Fisher. Yeah. yeah. I'd hire well, Jimbo. Well, this is what AM and AM was in exactly this situation. The alumni were just sick of it. We got to have the guy just fix this problem, go money whip somebody who's got a national championship. And that's what they did. And he has not looked impressive until this year. And now they may be finally pulling it together. But there's not another Jimbo Fisher out there other than Urban Meyer. So now they're with this, this challenge of, okay, um, does, you know, do these guys who haven't quite done it on that stage, are they worth the bet? Because it's a big bet to pay these buyouts. And I, I'm just bringing it up because I think this, these coaching decisions, these coaching hires are so hard. They're so multidimensional. It's hard to keep track of all the things that matter. It's hard for one guy to be good at all the things that matter. And there's probably a lot of work yet to be done on improving university decisions around how they find, how they find. And, and I mean, like in the context of this specific year, it must be that much more difficult because you're trying to kind of measure, you know, like, I mean, if this was another mediocre year, yeah. Tom Herman, like in kind of ordinary times, there would be maybe a little bit more information there. I mean, there it's confounded with all the craziness of, of, of 2020. For sure. And in and, and, and very specific ways, for example, I mean, Coach Franklin up at Penn State, 
is buddies with the athletic director at Texas, and he's done a phenomenal job there. Remember when he took over, you know, in the wake of the Paterno stuff, he did a phenomenal job at Vanderbilt, and he's had a disaster season. And a lot of the reason is, much of the reason probably is because of COVID-19 and some injuries to his team. They're totally unrepresentative, but there's no way they fire Herman, pay $20-plus million in bias, and then hire a guy who's got like a one-in-five schedule. Right, no run to five record right now. So it's complicated in, in lots of ways. Agreed, um, and I'm as as vexed as I am by it. I'm 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 sympathetic to what they have to do. I mean, I think they need to do something, frankly. But yeah. it's a hard. It's a and hard. It's not, I mean, Michigan presumably is having a very similar conversation, right? That's right. Michigan is having the same conversation. That's exactly right. Even more complicated by COVID nineteen because they were losing these games left and right. Guys, in the remaining time we have here in the second quarter. What about the NBA? You want you want Harden to the Sixers? You want are you excited about that possibility? Brad Lowe's shaking his head. No, that's the rumor. I wish I, our listeners could see Eric Bradlow's face when you asked that question. If I can give up Shake Milton for James Harden, yeah, I'll take James Harden. Yeah. But if you're talking about giving up what they're suggesting, which is Ben Simmons, you know the problem with that. It always say the good news and the bad news. The good news is James Harden's just a better player than Ben Simmons. He just is. I mean, Ben Simmons is great, but he's not James Harden. It would also give you what I say is the best player on the team, at least in the short term, won't be your center that you can't get the ball to at the end of the game. However, it's just that style of play will not work in the NBA. It just won't. Harden just, you you can't win with him because again, he can be double teamed, the ball comes out of his hand. And if you're giving up Simmons and maybe something else to get him, the Sixers don't have enough left. They just don't have enough left on the team once you double team Harden. So I, I don't like it. I wouldn't, mm-hmm. I wouldn't bring him in. And I'm hoping that Daryl Morey decides that's a bad decision. But who knows? I mean, Morey sure has said favorable things about him when he would. I know. And Harden's his, also his... 31. So, I mean, how – what is the age expectancy? And this is what people say, Kareem. All right, well, you know, you can't teach height. Kareem's seven foot three. You know, all right, so he could play, you know, LeBron James. All right, LeBron James is 6'9", 275. Yeah, he can play. <laughs> but can James Harden at 6'5", 220, can he play until he's 35? That's And beyond that, that's not obvious. So how many years are you getting James Harden? And is he as good as he was? What do the analytics say about that? So I wouldn't make the trade only because also he's 31 with a lot of mileage. You know, it's amazing. You're talking about his sizes and I'm mapping that onto football. And you just lose perspective because in basketball, Harden is a smaller guy. Um, And if you drop on a football field. He's thick, but he's not. He's not. He's thickish, but he's yeah. He would, but you, I mean, he would be he would be like a tight end and a good size tight end at that in college football or, or even professional football. And it's just weird to think that uh, a, a shooting guard uh, would 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 convert like that. So you mentioned Le- LeBron. What about, what do you think about his two year extension? He he's is he when is he going to tap out, Eric? When is he going to start losing? He was still the man this year at the ripe old age of what? 36, 37, 36. So when they won the title, he was 35, but it's more, I think what's more important is it was whatever his 18th year in the league. And this yeah, is exactly a lot of miles, a lot of miles on that body, a lot of miles on him. Um, he just takes remarkable care of himself. And what he's going to start to realize again is, and he already did this last year in the finals too. He doesn't have to be LeBron James for 40, for the 35 minutes a game he plays. Mm-hmm. He has Anthony Davis, who's unbelievably great. 
And they've got other players. Last year, you know, playoff Rondo would show up for five minutes at a time, and that's the only <laughs> break LeBron needed. And so, look, LeBron can be great for probably 20 minutes a game now. And the other 20 minutes a game, he's still very, very good. And that's all you need if you surround him with the right players. So I don't think he's going to tap out because I think they're going to start diminishing the amount of time he plays. I think already they've even said, by the way, as long as it's not a national televised game, you heard that? As long as it's not a national televised game, he can sit out and the NBA is going to turn the other cheek. Well, that's the real thing. He's going to, I mean, he can just play the playoffs. Yeah, he's going to play 40, 50 games. Oh gosh. Okay, so we might see him for a while. The way y'all are talking, it could be a long while. This is this is good for the Lakers. All right, guys. A little college football, a little NBA. We got more sports ahead of us. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow. You guys can jump in here in a way if you want to. You can reach us at Twitter on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. You can also send us email. We have email now, custom, tailored to this show, moneyball at wharton.upen.edu, moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. We consider that the mailbag, and we'll periodically pick up questions from you guys and cover them here. So catch us on email or on Twitter. Guys, we've just talked a little bit about college football, the end of season drama. We've got a similar thing going on, not quite to the end yet, got about four weeks or so of regular season left in the NFL. What are you seeing happen out there? What are you excited about? What are you paying attention to? Well, I think yesterday, I mean, if we just talk about yesterday to start with, but there's lots to talk about in the NFL. Um, You know, another glass of champagne celebrated by Bob Greasy, Larry Zonka, uh, et cetera. Um, No unbeaten teams left in the NFL. Shockingly, the Steelers lost at home uh, to the Redskins. And, um, you know, what was interesting about that game, and I think I texted you guys about it beforehand, was it was one of those strange games. Because if you look, whether it was Massey Peabody or the ESPN Football Power Index, on a neutral field, the Steelers should have been favored by minimum, I think, 9.5. 9.5. Massey Peabody had it a little higher, about 10, 10.1. That's on a neutral field. Yeah. And the betting line was six. So if you think there's any home field advantage, that's a five or six point differential. Yeah. And yeah. so that to me was, first of all, that seemed like a strange situation. And then number two, you even pointed out, Cade, that, you know, Florida has no chance to beat Alabama. Well, a lot of people would say, Washington had no chance to beat Pittsburgh. I mean, totally. I don't know that the odds, I mean, you guys know the odds, but you know, there's the standard deviation better than I do. Which one's more likely a 10 point underdog win in the NFL or a 14 point underdog win in college? 14 point underdog win in college. Sounds like one standard deviation. Is that so about that, right, Kate? That's, ten, that so sounds right. And, and 10 is less than 10 is less than one standard deviation in the NFL. Oh, I thought it was more than one in standard. I thought yeah, it was I, more than one also. I thought Ten? She- no, it's about 12 and a half in the NBA, in the, in the NFL. 12 really? and a half. Much? Really? Yep. That, huh. uh, I, I get, I mean, I, that, well, I thought that I didn't think it was that close, that, close yeah. to, as it, that close to college football, is that? Yeah. But either uh, way, I, no, you know, it's 12 and a half. Either way, it was a strange game. Um, 
it's not only no unbeatens, but again, how damaging that game is to the Steelers because, again, they're fighting for the number one spot. Let's remember, there's only one slot that's yeah. by with. So they still control their own destiny they in that if they went out there in that one number one slot. They do because they lost in a non-conference game. The Chiefs lost to the yeah. Raiders, which is a conference game. And so that's why they don't play each other. Wow. That's yeah. a heck of a heck of a tiebreaker to go to. It is. So, it is. By the way, we have them. Conference schedule, potential, conference record, potentially. We have them as the top two teams in the NFL, by the way. KC first and Pittsburgh about a point and a half behind them on a neutral field. But that's Pittsburgh dropping a little bit after that showing. Eric, you're talking about what a mystery it was. What, do, do you update much? We're kind of updating on the Redskins to some extent. By the way, my boy Colt McCoy got the win in that game. I mean, Colt is getting up there. Hadn't won a game in years and maybe wasn't the most impressive arm on the field, but. You're talking about for the Giants. Oh, no, that, that's right. I'm, jump, I'm jumping. I'm jumping. The resurgent in. NFC East has got us all over. Well, <laughs> let me just say this. And I, and I just te- I texted you guys about this also off air as well. It's not impossible now that an NFC East team could be the wild card. So let me just lay it out. The Giants and the Redskins are five and seven. The team right now sitting in the number seven spot. Remember, seven teams make it are the Arizona Cardinals at six and six. So all of a sudden, it's There's a lot of teams at six and six. So I don't think a seven loss team sniffs the playoffs in the NFC. What you don't. So you, you think the Cardinals aren't going to be, you think the Cardinals aren't going to be at best nine and seven. They're six and six, in the number seven spot right now. Well, but I mean, it's, it, there, it, there's also the Vikings. There's also, and I mean, this would involve base. I mean, the league, uh, sure, maybe, but I, I don't think a seven-loss team. No, I, I think, I think probably ten and six is going to be the last playoff spot. Um, but it would still involve both. It would involve both Philadelphia. I mean, sorry, Washington and Dallas running the ta- uh, Washington and New York running the table, right? Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, possibly. I'm just asking you a question. Right now, the yeah. Vikings and the Cardinals. Both are six and six for one of them. And they're in the seven and eight spot. You're saying one of the two of them is going to run the table. Cause if one of them doesn't, then one of them is going to have seven losses. That means there will be a seven loss team in the playoffs in the NFC by definition. Uh, okay. Are you, no, right. But I mean, you specifically asked about an, a second NFC East team in that slot, not any team in that slot. I mean, I'll, I'll walk back from my previous statement that there could be a seven loss team in that seventh slot. The chance of it being Washington or New York, unlikely. Okay. Because they both have to run the table for this to happen. Eric's giving us a statistical probability, a mathematical possibility, but not That's a right. And I agree it's possible. Okay. So let's talk, let's talk about uh, other teams and other games. So, um, you're mentioning the the um, the Vikings. Who else do we like in the NFC? I mean, who else is going to be interesting? It, we got the Rams continuing. Yeah, to I mean, I mean, you know, I, th- I think the one of the wild cards is definitely going to be the loser uh, between Seattle and it's looking like the loser between Seattle and the Rams um, is going uh, for the division. The loser that's going to be one of the wild card teams. Looks like Tampa Bay is going Tampa to be one Bay of them. is going to be yeah. probably yeah. another one of those wild card teams. And in a normal season, that would have been it. But now we've got a third wild card. Correct. Right? right. That's right. And that can be. I mean, San Francisco is technically in contention for that, as well as Minnesota. 
as well as there may be three or four teams that end up. I don't think it's going to be the Redskins or Giants either. There might yeah. be. Well, if the Giants end up nine and seven, they win the division because they have run the table and win the division. But yeah. I don't think that. I think there will be a nine and seven team in the NFC, and I don't know how all the tiebreakers fly between Chicago, San Francisco, the Vikings, the Cardinals. You know, none of those are none of those are terribly interesting, right? So th- let's jump over to the AFC. Um, what 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 has your eye over the AFC? Obviously. The Chiefs and the and the Steelers were talked about a little bit, but you know I can't. I mean the Bills. Do you believe in the Bills yet? I mean they just keep on doing it. They're, yeah, they're really I, looking- I believe. I mean I I I, I don't believe uh, they're in the class of Pittsburgh and Kansas City. I mean you know if you had to, my modal prediction for that AFC Championship game is Kansas City versus Pittsburgh. But I mean. I wouldn't count out like Buffalo or Tennessee. I mean, just like last year, any given Sunday in the playoffs. Well, speaking of any given Sunday, I mean, Tennessee, what happened with their game this past week? Did, did, did they um, They had one really bad half and one good half. Yeah, It's extraordinary. I don't understand how that happens. I looked down and the Browns were up by like 30 in the second quarter. Well, I mean, I, I last, I mean, I think you guys are a little bit less on the Browns bandwagon than I am anyway. So that probably was even more surprising to you guys. I actually thought that was a fairly even matchup going in, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, they, they definitely, they didn't play a very good game. And I mean that the AFC is interesting because a lot of the kind of teams in contention for the wild card have displayed a lot of really high variance performance, Tennessee, Indianapolis, Las Vegas, you know, I mean, Las Vegas almost lost to the jets. But let me, but but uh, Shane, let me say why I'm not big on Cleveland. Maybe you looked at the rundown, but if you haven't, try to guess. So Cleveland is nine and three. You can't take away. They have nine wins and three losses. Mm-hmm. Do you know what their plus minus is for the season? Meaning, if I take the total points they've scored and subtract the points they've given up, do you know what it is? I I, I can only guess. It's not particularly impressive, but no, I do not know what it is. <laughs> is it positive? Is it, it positive? Yeah. It's no. It's not positive. It's wow. minus fifteen. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so, oh my God. That's me, incredible. It's yep. incredible. Adi. And let me comment, by the way, that's worse than the Redskins, the Vikings, the Falcons, the Niners. So this is, where is, it, is it on the backs of like one really bad loss or two? Bad no, they, well, I mean, partly it's variance, but partly they've also had a very kind schedule. Like the two teams that are kind of quote unquote pretenders in their own kind of groupings in in the AFC are Pittsburgh and Cleveland and why because they're incredibly improved over last year and so they have really easy schedules based on their last year's kind of performance the extent that yeah. there's wiggle room in the schedule you know so Pittsburgh yeah. has a relatively easy schedule for a quote-unquote now good team same with Cleveland so the 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 Browns are going in to the hosting Baltimore this coming mm-hmm. weekend and it's this yeah. interesting case where they you know they they've got a presumably they would be the favorite here, but their massive Peabody has them below average and they still like the Ravens some. So we make this something like a three or four point game. The line though is only is a pick them. Mm-hmm. So uh, an important uh, AFC North game there, of course, um, Baltimore has some, because Cleveland won the game, didn't they? Early in the season, early, early. No, no, no. They Cleveland no. got blown out by the Ravens and the other. This is what Adi's point was. Cleveland lost two games like yeah. 38 to six. And that's minus 60 right there. And so, you know, but they know they got blown out by Baltimore earlier in the season. So uh, we think that the Ravens are a little bit of a different team since then. Do we think that the Browns are a different team? And do you, I mean, are they- very high variance. I mean, it's very kind of hard week to week to kind of get a handle. I mean, uh, Baker Mayfield specifically, his performance seems quite high variance. Um, 
Baltimore, same thing. I mean, you know, the Baltimore has, you know, I mean, certainly looked like world beaters last year and in an occasional games this year looked like world beaters, but they've also put in some very, very poor performances. So, so this is a question that I've, that I, that I tried to get Rufus to do some digging on recently unsuccessfully, but maybe we'll get some data on it, but it seems to me, doesn't it seem to you guys like the variance on these games is higher or that they're less predictable than usual. Yeah. It's a real simple question is what does the era, the, the betting line era look like this year relative to past years? It's and a it, great question. It yeah, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, are, are you mean, do you mean calibration? Is that what you're talking about? Some 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 version of accuracy, some measure of accuracy. Of course, there's yeah. lots of different measures, yeah. but some, some measure. So it's all these things that we've been talking about. You look down and, you know, Las Vegas wins by a bunch and then they lose by a bunch. It just doesn't make any sense. And the, what really crystallized it for me was looking at the score uh, this this weekend when Stanford and Washington were playing. Washington, supposedly good team, 3-0. and Only if they had more weeks, it'd be a playoff t- in the playoff discussion. Stanford, worst team in years. And you look up and Stanford's pounding them. And it just, I know this is anecdotal, but enough of these anecdotes have come across and it's, it just jumps out at you. And the NFL, I mean, I just don't remember volatility like this. No, Again, and, I, and I mean, part of, part of the volatility is kind of explained. I mean, you know, I mean, COVID knocked out, you could knock out all of your quarterbacks in any given year. <laughs> For example, that's happened. It certainly, I think, has result, resulted in far more injuries due to like less, you know, opportunities to train and stuff like that. It's, it's less practices. I mean, I, there's, there's various ways in which this year I think was going to be higher variance anyway. And it, it does seem to certainly be the case at least. Can, can I ask a question? I want to ask yeah. a question about what you, what you're observing, because there's two issues I think that, that I want to disentangle. One is the idea that the forecasts are all, all the lines are pushed towards the middle. So in other words, there's just a lot of uncertainty. So Vegas just says, I don't really know. And then okay, you see all this, all this, uh, the other is that you're getting upset. So another line is say 10, 12, and the team is yet the, the, the underdog is winning. Um, and that's happening more frequently than we'd expect well, me, by the me, traditional. Which one is it? Yeah. Cause so I bring up a great point, which is there's three potential distributions you might want to look at. One is the distribution of the lines. So has that yeah. changed this season versus others? Another one is the distribution of the score outcomes. Is there more variance in it? And then there's the difference between the two, which yeah. is the lines minus the scores. What's that distribution look like? And those, by the way, Adi, this is such a great point because all three of those distributions are interesting. And do we have any, any sense of them? No, there's, it's all utterly knowable. I just haven't dug around and I haven't been able to get the answer readily, but I'm, I, I, I approached it interested in the last of those, Eric, the difference. Yeah, right. But, but, but the underlying components are interesting. And, and Adi suggests a very interesting hypothesis. And that is that the, that the, that the market has been more conservative. I kind of doubt that. I, I'm guessing that's not the case, but um, it would be fun to dig into it and figure it out. So guys, we've got a pretty good schedule this weekend. I know y'all are excited about some of these games. What is it? So one, we have a Tuesday. Last week we had a Wednesday night game. We had, a <laughs> game. We had Tuesday and Wednesday this week. So we have Baltimore closing the week on Monday night in Cleveland, but we also have them ending this week tonight hosting the Cowboys. So um, just to kind of whet our appetite. But going forward, looking at week 14, what is it that you're excited about? I hate to say it. I, well, there's two games, obviously, that interest me tremendously. One you know, this is it now. Minnesota at Tampa Bay. This is it. Tampa Bay loses that game. They're seven and six. The Vikings are seven and six. The Vikings would have the tiebreaker over Tampa Bay. Now, all of a sudden, Tampa Bay's no lock for making the playoffs. 
at seven and six. So that game is truly fascinating. And then the shocking. Oh, don't, 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 don't go past it. Talk to us about Minnesota because I've kind of written them off. They seemed irrelevant early in the season. Kind of another irrelevant Viking season is kind of the way I coded it, which I'm sure is. Well, they've won five out of their last six games. Yeah, they were one and five going into their bye. And I think they've been five and one since then. Correct. Including including one decent, one very good win over the Packers at at Lambeau. One half decent win over the Bears at Soldier Field. And then, they, you know, they beat the Lions, the Panthers, and the Jaguars. Those are teams that they should beat. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of a sudden it's six and six. It's not looking that crazy. Yeah. And for Tampa Bay's perspective, certainly that, I mean, they're basically out of the running for the division now. So, I mean, yeah, it right. is the wild card or, or bust. And so the most important thing, I mean, obviously the most important thing for getting in the wild card is to win games, but especially to win games against other teams you're competing against for the wild card. So that's an, that's a very important game, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So, and, and I mean, sort of on, you know, I, I, I think kind of, uh, you know, kind of similar to that, you know, is, is, is uh, there's several games like the Patriots Rams game is kind of interesting. I mean, to me, not just because, um, you know, the Patriots aren't quite dead yet, but that has consequences for the end. I mean, it's even more in a playoffs kind of perspective. It's even more important for the Rams than it is for the Patriots. We, right. These, I mean, the, I think this is, I think this is kind of, well, Pittsburgh Buffalo may be a, a, a bigger game for the. I, I mean, in terms of kind of wild card and, and playoff consequences, the other one is Indianapolis, Las Vegas. So the Colts Raiders are also kind of very much in the wild card mix. And so like that is a game with a lot of tiebreaker implications as well. So the talk to talk to us about the Pats a little bit, because mm-hmm. this, this game you first mentioned Pats Rams, this is yeah. out in LA Rams are favored by five or so, but the, the Pats again, they've got a little bit of a funny yeah. arc this season, right? They, they start out without Brady and the Bucks start out big and it looks like this big separation. We started out the season thinking Bucks and Pats were kind of an even yeah. and interesting thing to watch. They start out so different and then here come the Pats and you look up and they're winning games by, you know, 40 points or crazy things like that. So what, this is your team. Um, no, I know. I mean, and, and I mean, they've been a frustrating team in some ways to watch this season because they have performed well against good teams they've lost a few close games against good teams i mean they took it down to the last play basically against both buffalo and seattle for example yeah but then when they play bad teams they kind of seem to play down to that level they almost got beat by the jets they did get beat by the broncos um they got beat by the 49ers back when the 49ers weren't beat. i mean 49ers have since improved but they were pretty bad back when they faced the pats and still beat the pats um, so they've been kind of this weird up and down team where it seems like they only kind of seem to perform well against the good teams. This last week was kind of a refreshing change from that when they blow yeah. out, blew out a bad team as you're kind of supposed to, it's weird to kind of take much confidence out of that. But, um, but, but yeah, no, like- I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, they, they essentially, they're already at six losses. Um, so they essentially have to win out, I think, to really um, be in, in, in any kind of playoff position. Okay, so um, we have a massive Peabody has them about 11th in the league, plus three. This yeah. is a tall order to go out to L.A. Yeah, it's seeing- the toughest games uh, left probably for – well, Buffalo as well. So, I mean, they've got they, – they have to beat L.A. and then they have to beat each of their division rival, you know, each division team. So they've got Buffalo in front of them yet. They've got Buffalo, Miami. And they've got not just Buffalo and L.A. They've got Miami in Miami, which is always a nightmare game for the Pats even when they're good. 
<laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, I, I we may not get to it, but Casey at Miami kind of has my attention in a way. It's just fun. oh yeah, no, I th- I I mean, I think that's obviously uh, you know, I think Casey kind of looks, I mean, unstoppable. But you know, I mean, a lot of teams at least are taking them, you know, late into games. They're not blowing people out. Um, so I think Miami has a hope of staying kind of competitive in that game and maybe maybe eking out a victory. Shane, one last question on New England, especially now that Brady is gone and we're watching Belichick kind of try to conjure magic out of some various parts. Do you what advantage do you think he brings to you in in terms of points? So given a given given a roster, they arrive in LA, they've schemed for a week, he's gonna call some things during the game. What advantage do you think that gives the Pats? How, how much do you feel? Do you see the magic anywhere? Do you feel it as a fan? If you had to quantify it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, you don't have to watch much of that game last week. I don't know how many people did because it was a huge blowout. But I mean, it, it, it was basically the best coach in the, in the NFL going up against one of the worst. And you could kind of see it in terms. I mean, you know, like there was like something like th- two or three touchdowns on just on special teams. So okay. the way I sort of see the, the effect of Belichick is coaching is the Patriots don't have take penalties. So watching Tampa Bay under Brady this year has been an interesting education yeah. in how many penalties that team takes and okay. how frustrated it makes somebody like Tom Brady, who's just not used to false things like false starts, you so know, and should, stuff that, like that. Let's stay with that for a second. And what, what, how is it that a coach can have that effect on the team? Like by what mechanism does a coach achieve that? I think it's twofold. I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of like, I guess I buy into sort of his, I think he, he comes up with structures, you know, kind of learning structures like this, do your job kind of learning structure that really kind of focuses athletes on kind of what is immediately in front of them. And probably them, that makes kind of learning and training easier. I think he also, his master, he's kind of a mastermind in identifying kind of in a player acquisition, identifying players that, are well adapted for the kind of roles he has envisioned them for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he often kind of takes these sort of like free agent cast offs or whatever and brings them to new England and they kind of in a slightly different role or, or, you know, they, they'll hold on, but that has consequence for not taking penalties. No, 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 no. I, I mean, the penalty thing I think is more focused on sort of like having schemes that, how you know kind of give the players the best opportunity to to excel kind of in in situations okay, okay. Can I ask a acquisitions about, a different dimension can i ask a question about prediction in football can you predict players tendencies to to cause penalties it's a it's a great question i do think teams have some persistence in their penalties yes the yeah. penalty, types of penalties. individuals how about individuals do they do that are certain uh, linemen whole, you know offensive linemen or do they I haven't, seen offsides, I haven't seen it. holding. It's no? a great question. I haven't seen yeah. that analysis. It's no, a- yeah, I, I, I've seen, as Kate sort of mentioned, at the at like season by season teams, like like there's a lot of core. Uh, there's game by game correlation. There's certainly correlation in terms of right. which teams are taking a lot of penalties at the individual level. I don't. I'm, I'm sure that has been analyzed, but I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I would guess it's kind of a weird censored thing because if there's a player that really does tend to take a lot of penalties, it's unlikely that they're they you continue. Know, <laughs> yeah, it's unlikely they're going to be so talented that they're still going to be kept in. We're we're down to the last minute. Adi, your team took a really hard loss. Oh, God. You, what you're what Kay's referring to is my Jets, who have been lifelong fans. I, I, how does it? How does a team blow it? Explain to me how that happens. Well, in this case, ball. it was in a. It was, it was quite possibly the worst defensive call for that play that could possibly be made. And I so, mean, literally, the defensive coordinator got fired over it. So that's some <laughs> solace. You just don't oh, really. 
I yeah, no, it was such a bad call. Well, explain, but I was, you know, there, what, what there's happened. been a whole conspiracy. Basically, it was a Hail Mary, and oh, yeah. they blitzed and sent everybody blitzed, after right. the quarterback. The yeah. only thing that could lose in the game was a touchdown. And you, in that situation, you play it's, – it's a canonical situation for a prevent right. defense, and he called a right. zero blitz. So there were three guys in pattern and three guys covering them and nobody else back there. It's just extraordinary. And everybody, everybody knew real time that it was a disaster. I'm sorry, Adi. I'm sorry your team continues on uh. the – on the on the no loss on the no win front, it's not fun. You you've only got a few teams ahead of you on on making a, a winless season. All right, guys, that has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one more quarter. We've got an interview. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now our traditional interview segment since we've gone online. We're here with Matt Mueller. Matt is the COO of Huddle. Many of you have heard of Huddle. If you haven't, you should have, and you probably will in the future. So that's one of the reasons we want to talk to Matt. These guys have been on with us before the last couple of years as they've blown up, and they're one of the real cutting-edge organizations in the world of sports analytics. So we're always delighted to have a chance to visit with them. Here with me, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen, Eric is proving to be the most, the most effective interview sous chef. I just love having, I need him along with me for all the interviews. He sets things up beautifully. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Shane, for being here. So Matt, thanks for being here. Thanks for taking time. You guys are, I, I can't imagine the COO of Huddle, who's kind of taken over the world, carving out 25 minutes for us. Hey, well, really thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Excited to be here. So give us a sense. We, we talked with you about a year and a half ago, and, um, but all of our listeners might not have caught that show. So give us a sense of what you're involved in. Many people think of Huddle as what their kids have on their phone, showing their high school football highlights, or maybe their nephew. This is how I first ran across you. And it's super exciting that a kid on a 3A team in West Texas, you know, a defensive tackle, would have a highlight you know, set of videos on his phone. And, and not only he has it, but of course that means any coach in the country can dial him up and look at him. So that's how most people think of Huddle, but you're a lot more than that now. So can you sketch for us what you guys are doing? You bet. Uh, so, so we were founded in 2006 with actually a focus on coaching tools. So our whole, our whole focus was around how do we help coaches be more efficient at their job? Um, how do we help them analyze their opponents more effectively? How do we help them trade film instead of driving to trade DVDs at a CD truck stop, right? Is how can we use technology and bring technology best practices that we see from the world and apply it to sports? Um, so we started now, with American now, football. Now, am yeah. I right that the origin story is that really you're just trying to save yourself work because you guys were like in the bowels of the University of Nebraska football stadium, the copying disc and videotapes and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. We were uh, at the very, very beginning. Our first customer was the University of Nebraska's football team. And they were making 150 DVDs a day, just stacks and stacks, right? <laughs> and so they'd run off the practice field, uh, all nine cameras, and they'd turn that into a bunch of DVDs that they wanted their players to take home and watch. And for anybody who's watching DVD, right, we've got Netflix now, we've got Amazon Prime now, but if you think back to watching a DVD and trying to rewind back even just a few seconds to watch a play, the, the user experience was miserable. Right. Um, and we lived, we were fortunate enough to, uh, to live with a quarterback and watch firsthand him try to study them. Uh, and we said, there's, there's an easy way. We, we can make this so much better by digitizing that. Uh, and yeah, it saved us time not having to, to mess around with DVDs, uh, but it was going to allow the, the team to communicate around video so much more effectively, make them better at coaching 
if you can bring that together with the power of analytics to help them find those key moments faster, um, we knew we had something really fast uh, and uh, that was going to explode. And so uh, when we started, it was, you know, it's around elite, um, but we kept, we kept having these high schools ask us for the same problem, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the same, the same solution, right? They're saying, Hey, we, we still make DVDs. Uh, but instead of being a full-time coach, I'm a teacher and I'm a dad. And not only do I have to coach, you know, 10 hours a week, but I also have to help my daughter with her science fair project and yeah. drive my son to practice and figure out how to mow the lawn in between and maybe have dinner with my wife. Right. And, and all of these things just took them way too much time. And we said, we can simplify your workflows and help you get more value out of your stuff really quickly. So Matt, let me just ask you a quick question as a statistician, since we can just talk sports, we're an analytics and sports show. So let's talk both. Um, suppose someone came to you and said, Matt or huddle in general, how do we know the people that come to huddle just aren't better coaches and were are use better data versus like, have you ever run a randomized experiment? It seems hard to run a randomized experiment to randomize someone to your process versus not. So h- how do you address that? That maybe it's just a, what we in statistics just call a self-selection issue. Sure. I, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, brilliant coaches are brilliant coaches, right? Whether or not they have analytics, they're, they're going to figure this out. Um, but maybe I'll answer your question. We haven't run that test, but I'll give you uh, one of the, the unique things that we hear about um, when we've talked with NFL teams. Uh, and they'll, they'll commonly uh, phrase this, you know, it, it jokes with us is the Bill Belichick uh, rule. Uh, maybe some coaches that are scared of Belichick don't want to bring new technology into the fold because they're scared that Belichick will figure out how to use it more effectively than them. And Belichick doesn't want to bring new technology into the fold because he doesn't want the coaches who are weaker than him to maybe close the gap between him and them. So then you end up in this world in the NFL where they actually push back maybe against some levels of technology that doesn't exist in the high school space or, or the, even the college space where there um, there's fewer regulations and fewer, uh, so, you know, uh, limitations around what they can do. So it's allowed us to really explore how to democratize access to those analytics. But then we do see at the end of the day, great coaches, figure out how to use those tools to motivate and find the key moments faster rather than just, you know, leaning on just this one stat as the, as the thing that they used. And Matt, is it not the case that you guys have almost blanket coverage now? I mean, you, you might, there might be a selection effect, but it's almost a selection out as a select in because you're, you've got so much. Can you give us some sense of your, of your client coverage across the sports that you're involved with? Yeah. So we, um, we serve about 170,000 teams across the globe now. Um, we're in 99% of high schools in the U S so, you know, Kate, you mentioned this, if you, your first experience with us might've been through high school, American football, seeing a highlight somewhere, you know, shared on Facebook or a kid on his phone. Uh, but we're now in over 80% of basketball teams, boys and girls, uh, in the U S uh, and, and we've done a great job growing in volleyball, soccer, and we're continuing growth in multiple other sports, lacrosse, ice hockey, where there's, where there's lots of growth. Uh, but we don't just stop at the, at the high school level. Uh, or even just in the U.S., we are um, really dominant competitively. We have 29, 30 NBA teams. Uh, over 91% of Division One basketball uses us. Uh, we've got 100% of the Premier League, 100% of the Bundesliga, 100% of Aussie Rules football, 100% of the Chinese Super League, and I could go on and on and on. Uh, but we cover across 37 different sports uh, and, and are really the leader in the space. Real quickly, give us a sense, just jumping levels and continents, give us a sense of what a team in the Premier League is doing with your data right now. So the core is really is really the same. They analyze the, the game film 
and they look for key moments. Uh, so they're trying to address um, how do we want to look at um, where our players are positioned? What's the spacing like? Did we actually move in the correct moment? What was this challenge like? And did, you know, did this lost challenge lead to a missed opportunity for us or a goal the other direction? Uh, but so they're just using video, tagging key moments on it, uh, and using that to drive coaching and education for their players. Uh, and then, you know, broader, they're also looking at recruitment. So one of the, the biggest things that we see elite organizations using video for is analyzing athletes around the world and trying to find which athletes they should bring into their system, which athletes they should recruit, because that has, you know, in the premier league where you're not going through a draft, you can, you know, essentially sign people from anywhere in the world. Uh, It's a massive investment, uh, but it can be, you know, a a game changer for your organization. Uh, Matt, it's it's kind of, it's exciting to sort of hear your kind of like essentially explosion into all these different spaces because, you know, it's, it's kind of like statistics itself. It's like the same fundamental tools can be applied across a lot of different areas. But it is not easy necessarily to transfer between those areas. So can you talk a little bit about like some of the challenges you've faced as you've kind of gone from like high school sports to English Premier League to some of these other kind of domains? Like is it are most of the challenges you face on like kind of the, the data side or the analytics side or the communication side? You, know, the, you nailed it, Shane. The, the tool is actually great. We, uh, we can scale the tool to multiple sports very easily. Um, the real challenge, I think, or one of our real challenges, uh, I'll, I'll give you two of them, uh, but they're, they're related, is actually understanding the sport in depth when you want to move into that sport. Uh, at a, so, you know, we're all here in, in North America. We grew up with football. I can tell you when the Super Bowl is every year. And even if you don't watch the Super Bowl, you know who played in it. Uh, you think about how many people are college, suddenly become college basketball fans when the NCAA tournament pops up. Uh, even though they haven't watched a single college basketball, you know, regular season or tournament game for years. Um, and so you have this ingrained natural understanding of sport here in the U.S., right? But when you think about soccer, that's really new. Uh, and it's really been a big growth for us. So when we wanted to grow into soccer, we knew we needed to get that in-depth knowledge. Um, and, and you'll hear it on this podcast. I'm saying soccer. I'm very intentional about it. If we go anywhere else in the world, I'll call it football. Uh, and so you may have heard me even say American football or football. Uh, we are – we we have to, we had to learn to change our language. We had to learn to talk the language of the teams we're working with. We had to understand what they want to do when they call something recruitment instead of recruiting. It seems small, but those, those little things matter a lot. So speaking their language and understanding their sport was really difficult for us as a American, I shouldn't say difficult, but it was a challenge that we needed to overcome as an American company uh, to really expand. Uh, And then you need to learn how to, to dig in depth, right? So what a, what a high school team wants to tag at any sport is different than what an, you know, a professional team wants to tag. And so you've got to have the tools that can scale, but then you can't just give someone 87 pages of data. <laughs> so you have to understand what they're actually, what questions they're trying to solve, what things that they want to pull out of that and how you can present that back to them uh, in a meaningful fashion. What's unique about it for us is as we've learned from elite organizations, we then take that data <laughs> and that learning and try to bring it back down the line to you know, as low level as possible. So we can take, hey, here's how elite organizations study football. Boom, hey, high school team in, you know, San Antonio, Texas. Like, here you go. One of the things that strikes me about your response there, Matt, is it's so common. Like statisticians, Shane pitched the question as, as, it sounds like statistics. It can go anywhere. You're like, yeah, it does. Also like statistics, you need some domain knowledge to really make a difference. Oh, and by the way, you need to know how to communicate with people. 
And it's the same story again and again and again. It doesn't matter how good an analyst you are or how good your technology is. If you don't actually understand the problems that your clients face, you can't be useful to them. If you can't communicate in their language, you can't be useful to them. Eric. Yeah, so Matt, let me ask you, it's maybe a two-part question, but it's really the same question. When people tag stuff, view stuff, are they doing it all on the huddle platform? Meaning, do you see what people are doing with the data once they get the data or the video film? So in other words, do you guys consider yourself a data company? Meaning, I'm just going to supply you data. You can grab it off the platform, do whatever you want with it. We don't see it. Or do you consider yourself a data and insights company because- once people have to get the data on the huddle platform, in some sense, you're like a website. Every click you can observe, every tag you can observe, everything you do they can observe, and therefore you can share best practices. How does it work? It's a, it's a bit of both, to be honest. Um, so we do build in data and analysis tools right inside of huddle. So teams can bring data in from multiple sources. Uh, we make it very easy to import third-party data. Let's say you have positional data that you want to bring in or other data sources we've made it very easy to, to bring that data together and pull that out. So we can look at what trends teams are trying to find. Uh, and really we're not trying to, we don't, we, we've, we have a good contract with our teams that we're not stealing their insights and then suddenly running that to everyone else. Uh, but we do look for workflows, especially like how many clicks and how many things did you go through to get to this insight? And if that was the question you were trying to answer and you're doing it again and again and again, can't we just show you that right away? And can we just push that information to you or what piece of data can we automate to give to you right away? Um, We do look for those pieces. And when teams bring us in and and want to share broader, they can. Now there are some teams who have built, uh, especially at the elite organization, you know, Liverpool is a a great example. Um, They've got a, an awesome team of data scientists uh, and they had multiple articles about them in the run to, uh, you know, the premier league championship this last year. Um, And Will, Will Spearman, who's awesome uh, was on our team for a while left to go to Liverpool they pull a lot of data out of our system and give it to him. And he as a data scientist then has built models that Liverpool uses both for recruitment and for, you know, opposition analysis uh, to, to take a look at things and go. Let me ask a related question. I, 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 we learned the last time we talked to you that you guys had proprietary cameras, if I remember correctly. So there's a data capture element to what you're doing that is probably pretty fundamental because if you're providing data on soccer prospects, that means you're in very far flung corners of the world, capturing those data in some way, which sounds labor intensive, but I think you guys are turning that into a technology problem. Am I thinking about that right? Yeah, you, you nailed it. Um, one of the, the most exciting things we're building, we'll call it auto focus, but it's, it's automated capture. Um, and so uh, what we want to have is every field pitching court in the world covered with an automated camera. Uh, so at any level, one of the biggest challenges is when I want to go have my match filmed, I have to find someone to do it for me. And if you're a professional organization, that's built in, right? You just have someone film it and it's good to go. But a high school, if you talk to a high school basketball coach, it is one of their biggest challenges. Every, every game is finding somebody to film the game for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then even if they do film it, yeah, you know, they might be watching off this direction, but the place over here because they were eating a hot dog and the mustard spilled on their shirt and uh, you know, it's, it's really tough. And then it makes the analytics go haywire, right? Because if you miss plays, then everything goes sideways. So uh, we've, we've started to, to just remove that and say, how can we automate capture for people uh, so that you just walk onto the field pitcher court and you know that everything is automatically tagged and uploaded to huddle. And one of the things that's unique about us is we're doing all of our work on the edge. So rather than uploading everything to, you know, whatever service you want to use and then running your algorithm. So big raw video files, massive upload time, 
within massive time to wait for return, we can actually do everything on the edge live as it's happening. So we can uh, deliver a produced feed right away from a panoramic camera that looks like a broadcast. It looks like someone following automatically. And then we are building in automation on top of that with computer vision to detect, hey, this was a three-point shot. Hey, this was a shot on goal. Hey, here's where the player was. Here's what the spacing was of everyone on the on the pitch when this happened. And here was the percentage chance of that going in based on the data we have inside of our system, based on that shot going in. And we can provide that intelligence in real time to coaches to make decisions and eventually to live broadcast so that you as a fan could get excited watching it. Okay, Matt, that is exciting, but it's almost too exciting. Now, how much of that are you actually doing already versus you're going to be able to do? Because computer vision itself is still a developing thing, right? I mean, guys who focus on nothing but computer vision are still getting good at like being able to just record a soccer match and code things up in the way that the analysts will need, right? So what, what of the, of the, you kind of described a stack from a raw camera to, to analytics that coaches could work with. How much of that is in the can and how much of it is kind of the frontier you're on right now? A decent amount's actually in the can right now. Uh, okay. So we are automatically capturing matches indoor, outdoor. We've got that camera built, deployed, um, and uh, we're excited about that. And that is, we're rolling that out across the world. We've used that in multiple areas. Um, we've got gyms in Japan. We just had a, our first install in Japan go up live for a basketball uh, match in Japan on that. That was exciting. Uh, but we've got over 5,000 units deployed here in the U.S. Um, that are doing the automated capture um, and bringing that that video feed live. Um, the computer vision, so, so and, and you nailed it, right? Computer vision is, um, there's a difference between 100% accurate all the time yeah, and, right. and 80% and 90% and 95%. And the levels of work to move kind of up each one of those yep. iterations is really difficult. Yep. Um, but we have, we built something that uh, in our algorithm uh, that actually it basically can detect whether it knows this moment automatically was correct. Um, so it's like, Hey, we know we've got this one, right. This one we're a little unclear on. So it kicks it to our team. We actually have oh, interesting. analysts that, uh, that do a lot of work for us uh, and they do the cleanup on things so they can provide that data. And the good news is the better our algorithm gets, the more we can drive that towards real time. We need to, we try to train our students to think that way. I, we haven't figured out how to do that, to know when they don't know and know when they do. That's really helpful. You should tell us how to do that. You so, know, I, you're talking to the wrong person. We have a really smart team, much more intelligent than I, that, uh, that could probably walk you through the, the prospect of, of how they tackled it and, and uh, that entire journey. But it's been fun to watch and, you know, just seeing even simple things, right? The, uh, high school girls basketball game where hair is blocking the numbers and okay. the fact that our algorithm is able to detect from a variety of different things, not just the number, but also eventually, you know, just through a, a few frames, eventually pose detection and who this person was. And so when they're included right in behind a, a variety of people being able to say like, Hey, number 12 took this shot, made it and is now shooting a free throw. Yep. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, and that stuff's going to be really powerful for coaches. If we start to scale that out in mass. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're talking to Matt Mueller. Matt is COO of Huddle. They are one of the top sports analytics firms, really top to bottom technology to analytics. They're in with teams um, at all levels of all sports in all countries. Really is that much. It just amazes me that you, like a few guys from Nebraska have grown into this powerhouse. It really is remarkable. We don't do that. Eric, we need to do a case study on these guys. This is clearly (laughs) case study worthy. We got to beat Harvard to this one. Come on. We got it. We're beginning to do some data cases, Matt. We'll get, we'll come knock on your door in Lincoln soon. Listen, you guys are, you guys are doing some things that um, are unique to this moment as well. So how is the pandemic 
um, affecting recruiting. And I'm guessing that y'all are just all the more valuable since coaches and schools are having a harder time getting to see players in person. Yeah, you nailed it. And, uh, you know, the, the pandemic has been a, a challenge for a variety of reasons, but in recruiting, um, it's been really tough. You think about the normal cadence that a senior would have gone through this year, right? They would have done camps uh, and clinics all summer long to meet with these coaches in person. Um, they would have then had, you know, anybody in the fall would have had a fall season. Uh, and unfortunately over 25% of athletes didn't have that season uh, this fall. And, and uh, so they didn't have the one-on-one showcases. They didn't have uh, their own season. They can't do on-site visits, right? They can't go on campus to go do a recruiting trip. Uh, and you just think about all the opportunities that, that these athletes had great athletes that usually would get picked up somewhere along the line and get missed. And so where we filled in was, I mean, we already had recruiting tools available, but we saw coaches lean into video and unique ways to connect with coaches, right. And, and their athletes. So not only around their highlights, but we saw coaches really start to ask athletes to go through and film themselves running a 40, take a picture of your hand size, uh, or have somebody film that and put it on your huddle profile. So it's all in one location for us things that they would have done in person, right? Go stand in a door frame and <laughs> take a picture so that we can see how tall you are relative to a door frame. And it seems like simple things, but, but they've leaned into huddle on both sides, right? So you've seen college coaches lean in and say, we can drive this information through a platform that you have readily available to you. You have the phone in your hand. You can put this on your highlights, go after it. Mm-hmm. And that's one. The other story that, that I like to talk through is, you know, professional football and uh, soccer in, in Europe they've had a real difficulty traveling uh, to some of these tournaments, these showcases that would have been valuable, Northern Africa, um, you know, across even some, some parts of Europe, some parts of Europe. And uh, so we've actually been able to, to partner with uh, some of the countries. So in, in Cameroon, for instance, uh, we actually filmed a showcase, um, put it into our platform. Uh, and there were four athletes signed out of that showcase uh, to professional clubs in France and the UK uh, that Normally, you know, they would have sent a scout to those tournaments, but due to COVID, they were unable to attend. Uh, but our video is what drove these athletes to, uh, to get there. And it's actually more athletes signed out of these showcases than would happen in a normal year because we filmed everything. Uh, and these teams dig in and they, they're, you know, have an insatiable thirst for, uh, you know, talent. And so they're looking for how can we find these athletes? And so Huddle is just, we've seen such an uplift on our platform of, um, you know, athletes and coaches using it as, as a connection tool. It's not the only one, obviously zoom has been powerful or teams or whatever tools that, that people have. And obviously FaceTime's great. Uh, but I think what, uh, what's been unique for us is just being able to take our tools and really play a part in helping these athletes kind of unlock the opportunities they deserve uh, at all levels. It's interesting to hear you guys talk about these, the tryouts related the workouts as opposed to the games. And I wonder to what extent that might be something you continue to push. So for example, you know, there are a lot of guys sitting around the stadium in Indianapolis at the combine, Well, maybe it's going to be moved now, but the state, wherever the combines held, you have, you know, every scout in the industry is there and a single camera could track everything perfectly that's happening on the field in a way that you don't want to make them obsolete, but it sure does supplement whatever they're seeing with their naked eyes and the conversations they're having. Is that, is that a direction that huddle is, is trying to work at all? It's not I don't mean to come necessarily, but just generally the kind of work out non-game activities. We're trying to find, I would say we're trying to find the best way to present it into our, and bring it into our platform without it causing unnecessary noise. So we don't want to, to distract from the value of watching game film. We know that, 
in theory, I, I should say we should just, we all assume that these showcases will come back to normal, um, you know, in, in the future once, you know, hopefully cross our fingers that the vaccine has worked for, uh, for everyone and we can return to normal life. Um, but, uh, but we do, we are looking for ways to, to bring additional content in to just make it a one-stop shop for organizations everywhere. And that's, uh, if we can bring in um, different types of content, such as showcase content or tryout content, I think it could be very valuable. Uh, and to your point, like there's, there's something beautiful about sitting there, seeing it in person, but there's also something great about just seeing 100 athletes do the same exercise over and over again and being able to say, these seven were the most interesting to me. I want to have a deeper conversation with them. Let's double click on them and go learn more about them. Let's like get their, you know, figure out who they are, where they're from and go talk to their coach and their family and learn more about right. recruiting them. Right. I think that could be more valuable and give more athletes opportunities. And that's really what gets us out of bed uh, from the recruitment side is how can we help, you know, enable every athlete to get the opportunity they deserve. And I think, you know, finding ways to bring in showcases and tryouts that unlocks that for us. Yep. Yep. So just in the last couple of minutes here, a couple uh, wind up questions. One is wh- where, what's next for you guys? Like, what are you working on? What's hard? What are you excited about? What's the growing edge for huddle right now? You've been so active, very interested in what you see as the next opportunity. Yeah. I think we have um, one overarching opportunity is how do we find a way to make, uh, to just democratize access to our tools at all levels. Um, and I think just about everything we're doing uh, we'll tie back to, to that statement. So how can we democratize access to opportunity for athletes? We'll, we'll use a phrase, make every moment count. Uh, and so when we think about that, um, how can we make our tools accessible to coaches at all levels in all geographies at all sports? Uh, and so taking what we built in this, this great strength at the kind of amateur level in the U S we'll call it competitive and scaling that around the world. That's a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, even just taking that to Europe is, is tough. And so it's a really exciting uh, frontier for us to move into a place where we've got great uh, market penetration at the elite level. But how do we move down into the, the local teams and, and find ways to scale mm-hmm. and make our, our tools available? Uh, and then how do you take the analytics of those teams? And then how do you bring the recruitment back up so that the best athletes always bubble up and land in the places that they need to land for their for their best opportunity? Right. And that might not always be a professional organization. Uh, but it might be slightly down a little bit and it's still a great opportunity for them and something that's really exciting for them to pursue that they wouldn't have gotten in the the past. So to me, it's about being able to to scale towards that opportunity and everything around that tech, uh, around the computer vision, the automated capture, the automated analytics, those things all all play right into that. Mm -hmm. So Matt, my question actually builds directly on your comment about automated analytics. Does your, does Huddle allow you to say maybe automated? Wow, that was really fast. Wow, that was a really high jump wow, that was a really great shot. Like, it, will it ever get to the point where in some sense you can compare across different videos? Like, wow, that person ran as fast as a fifth percentile college student while a high schooler. Is that ever in the dream to create a massive database of video and then kind of distributional, like this person's at this, this point of the distribution for this population? You know, that's a, one of my, one of my teammates likes to call that the glass of wine conversation, right? Where we're all having a glass of wine together and pontificating about where we could go. And yeah, that's, I'd love to get to that point. I think we've got a long way to go until we're, we really have the the global sense around that right now. Um, we're focused more on the like stat level analytics as compared to how fast or someone runs or how high they jump. Uh, but uh, those are things we are tracking. We do track X, Y, and Z position on uh, some of our more elite analytics. And so being able to, to bring those together and provide that, that kind of shared database and that global library uh, and just like the platform that could prevent, present to people across all fronts, right? Media, sport, 
um, and just fans, I think could be really exciting. So Matt, you mentioned democratization as one of the overarching goals. A, a version of that is something we're seeing with your Breakthrough Summit. Can you tell us a little bit about this event that you've just been involved with? Yeah, thanks for bringing this up. We're, it's something we're really passionate about. Um, the Breakthrough Summit, it's a, it's a digital leadership summit for women in sports. Uh, so it's December 14th and 15th. Uh, it's completely digital and free. Um, so you can go, and I'll, I'll hit this early, you can go sign up at BreakthroughSummit.live. Uh, and, and log into, you know, watch coaches and, and people across the industry really talk about some of the challenges that women fall into, uh, run into in, in sports, but also, um, how they're, how they're positioning themselves to, to grow through that. So we've got Muffin McGraw. Um, she'll be speaking for us. Um, we've got, uh, Mickey Grace who spoke for us, uh, in the past and she'll be there again. Uh, and there's a lot of great people that can speak about, you know, the challenges women face, uh, and how they can, you know, set themselves up for success. And we want to be a big part of that. We think, um, you know, just creating more opportunities for women in sport um, is really important. Uh, and it's something we're really excited to be a part of. It's great. Fits the mission well. And you get every year, you get more and more examples of women who are breaking those barriers and can stand up at conferences like that and motivate uh, the next generation. It's fantastic. Matt, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed getting some time with you guys. Always love hearing about what you're doing. We'll look forward to talking to you more down the road. Thanks for the time, guys. Appreciate you. Absolutely. That's Matt Mueller, COO of Huddle, an organization on the frontier of sports analytics, has been at the frontier. Now they're pushing it quite a bit um, around the world. That also is the fourth quarter and another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Appreciate you guys being here for the whole crew. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, the boss man, Matty D, the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.